0: It is good to be able to be together today, whether you're joining us online or whether seated at one of the campuses today. I not only want to welcome you today, but I want to invite you beyond today um, to join us as we begin a study of a section of the Bible that's authored by a man named... Luke. Um, The Bible tells us that Luke was a doctor, but more importantly, he was a follower of Jesus. And he records the story. Um, He writes Luke, the the book that bears his name, but also Acts, and they, they run in sequence. What a lot of people don't know is that the amount of material that's found in Luke and Acts. Is actually more words, more material than the five books that the Apostle John writes. So the Gospel of John, the Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. In fact, Luke and Acts is even more words, more content than all 13 of the letters that Paul writes. It is a lot that Luke brings to the table for us. He's going to tell us the story of what it looks like to follow Jesus as though you have nothing to lose. And so I want to invite you to read along. There's 52 chapters in Luke and Acts. And so every week we're reading a chapter. That means that most days you get five or six verses. It's a small section to read. Um, there's, a, there's a reading plan. If you're joining us online, you go to the website, heartoflife.org, right there on the front page, you can, you can get the reading plan with it. There's some methods of how to, to really help you study that text and help us understand what God's saying to us every single day. I want to invite you on this journey. We're only in chapter 2, so you're not too late at all. Today... Toward the end of chapter 2, I, I want us to start with a couple of statements that Luke makes about Jesus. Here's what it says in verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And then if you look at verse 52, it sounds very similar. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Two, in a way, simple statements that just state the fact Jesus developed like children develop. He did. He becomes stronger physically, but he also becomes strong in fully being filled with the wisdom of God. What is the IQ test that measures the mind of the child who is God? Luke is showing us in a couple of verses the real humanity of Jesus. He is fully man, fully God. And so in this humanity, it it contains the mind of God, the wisdom of God, which Luke tells us grew gradually In Jesus the book of Hebrews tells us another book of the Bible that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin I'm asking you to consider that would include the temptation that comes to every child to be selfish to be self-centered to be demanding but the Hebrews also tells us that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. In other words, Luke says that there's this developmental process going on by which in overcoming the temptation that Jesus walked through just like we do, he developed spiritual strength and obedience. And by the time he's 12, 12 Jesus, grasp who he is. He understands the wisdom of God, and he knows the mission to which he's called. Now, I want you to look at those verses one more time, but just to look at the actual numbers here. Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52, if we can look at those, Luke 40 actually describes the first 12 years of Jesus' life. That's what that verse, how he grows in, in strength and in wisdom. It's the first 12 years of his life. Verse 52 is all we know about the next 18. The Bible is, is really silent on this first 30 years of his life we've just read through his birth account we've read some of those stories attached to his birth but then this is what we're given today what I'm asking you to see is that in between verse 40 and verse 52 12 years and then 18 years Luke inserts one story and in that one story are the only recorded words that we know of Jesus in his first 30 years. Now, I'm not saying he only spoke those words. I'm just saying they're the only words that are recorded in Scripture. Might this story be important? If it's the only one we're given, why did Luke give it to us? Today, we're gonna see. So let's go to verse 41 and begin to take in this story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now let's talk for a few minutes about this word Passover. Well, what's that about? The Passover was one of three main feasts that God had instructed his people to celebrate every year. You got the Passover, you got Pentecost, and you got Tabernacles. That's what they were called. Those were the three main feasts. The Passover was about remembering the exodus out of Egypt. And if you flip all the way back almost to the beginning of your Bible, you will find a book there called Exodus and you can read the story. God's people in slavery in Egypt and how a series of plagues are sent in order to cause Egypt to let them go. And the 10th of those plagues was the loss of the life of the firstborn of every household. Except. Except where a lamb was sacrificed and the blood of that lamb placed over the the doorpost of the home wherever that blood was applied the death angel would pass over that household and the firstborn would live And so God said, after that moment, every year, you're going to remember this. Every year, I want you to celebrate this festival. And the festival reminds them of a God who is a savior of his people. All of that was pointing to whom? Jesus. And suddenly, Luke gives us a story where Jesus is attending the Passover. Jesus is celebrating the Passover. Now, by Mary and Joseph's time, when people came to the Passover, we're talking about hundreds, most likely, of thousands of pilgrims who made their way to Jerusalem for this celebration. It's a big deal. Literally, people are colliding at all points. You've got hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who are making their way to this celebration, and everybody needs a place to stay. So you better book your Airbnb early, right? I mean, you just knew here's when it's gonna happen each year, so you, you book the house early because your family's gonna need a place to stay. Everybody's looking for animals to sacrifice, Historians tell us that during this time frame, it is likely that a quarter of a million animals would be sacrificed. Can you imagine the sound of a quarter of a million bleeding sheep, right, throughout the city of Jerusalem? We know that all 24 courses of the priest would be present, For this festival. Why? Because a massive amount of butchering had to be done. I'm going to tell you, I think even the beggars would show up. All the beggars, right? This is the moment You, you position yourself at the right place in town in order to appeal to the sensitivities of people who right now they're thinking about God and maybe how they ought to be taking care of one another. You've also got Roman soldiers who are present. They're making their presence known, trying to maintain some level of control. All I'm saying is you've got to imagine Jerusalem. All these points are colliding. Now, the Passover is actually just one day. The feast of the Passover is one day. But God attached it to another celebration that was seven days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it got to where when people talked about the Passover, it was, it was this eight-day celebration that God had constructed. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the Bible again, Exodus, Deuteronomy, we read where the men were told to attend. Typically, in that day, not all the women went to Passover. And what Jewish tradition tells us is that when a woman would go to Passover, it really did demonstrate an unusual spiritual devotion. Add to that, that by the time Mary and Joseph come along, the Jews have scattered more than they have before. Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth, which is 80 miles north of Jerusalem. That's about a four-day trip. And so it is significant here when it says Jesus' parents went. Not just Joseph, but Joseph and Mary, check it out, every year they go. I think Luke is just reminding us of the genuine character that we read about who Mary really is, who, who Joseph is at the heart. And it's this beautiful picture of how this little family, as they're growing, and as they're growing, everything becomes more difficult. Those of you who have growing families know that, especially travel. Come on, those of you who have little kids, like little babies, I mean, th- there are car seats and strollers and pack and plays. You got to rent a U-Haul just to go somewhere overnight. Such was the case for Mary and Joseph. Their family is growing, and yet they still go. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen couples pray that God would bless them with a family. And then God gives them children. And then that couple uses those children as an excuse not to continue to do the things that God says will keep their family growing toward him because it's too hard. It's just too much. It just takes too much. Luke wants us to know that's not the heart of Joseph and Mary. It's a four-day, one-way trip from Nazareth. That's if. They travel 20 miles a day. And so Luke, I think, is just reminding us of this sweet devotion of a young couple. They are young, they're teenagers, right? They get married as teenagers. By the time Jesus is 12, they're they're mid-20s, late-20s maybe. And every year, they go to the Passover because it's just one of the simple instructions that God gave them to keep their hearts close to him and to help their family grow toward him. Luke also wants us to be clear that Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And so he would go at the time that they sacrificed the lamb for his family The the animal would be killed by the priest and the blood of that animal would be sloshed against the altar. There's just this this unforgettable image of blood. I I know it's gross, but we're talking about a a quarter of a million sheep, a, a quarter of a million that would be sacrificed. There is a river of blood, we're told, that would flow out the backside of that temple, down the hill toward the Kidron Brook, that Kidron Brook would turn red. And I'm saying that's a pretty vivid experience for a 12-year-old Jesus who is now filled with the wisdom of God And he sees it with a divine perspective. Imagine the intensity of his mind. He, the Lamb of God, that's going to take away the sins of the world. In just 20 years or so, he will be hanging on a cross outside this city. His blood being shed as the only saving Lamb of God. Verse 43, after the festival was over, I know it's just a few words, but here's what that means. Mary and Joseph and their family stayed for the whole thing. That's what that means. So I I don't know, just in a day where devotion seems rare, in a day where our time seems so incredibly, uh, I don't even know what the word is, four days to get there, eight days of celebration, and four days to get home. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, this is where the story gets fun. You ready for this? The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Now I've already told you, you're traveling about 20 miles most of these days. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Some of y'all came in here today feeling guilty because you yelled at your kids this morning trying to get ready for church. But at least you didn't forget them somewhere this week, right? You didn't leave them at the store. You didn't, right? This week, right? Anybody feeling better about your parental resume right now? I hope you're encouraged today. Let's get a little context. Luke tells us that they traveled in company. What we know from the historians of that day is that meant a large group. That's how they traveled. Why would they travel in a large group? For one, who wants to travel 80 miles alone when you got friends? Spend the time together. Second was about safety. Because there were thieves along the road. And you got to believe the thieves knew when the festivals would happen. They knew when people would be traveling. And so they traveled in large groups. Historians also tell us that the way the caravan would often look is that the children would be placed out in the front. Women would typically be in the middle. Men would be in the back. And the, the, the main strategy with that was so that the kids could set the pace. Because if you put the kids in the back and you think about the pace at which adults move, they're they're ready to get there, right? Because we got to make it one minute faster than we made it last year, right? So so they're trying to get there. No, you put the kids in the front so you can kind of herd them along, but it's a big group. And so maybe it's the case when Mary and Joseph and this whole caravan leave Jerusalem, headed home. I mean... They saw their other kids, maybe, because we're not told about, we, we know that, that Mary and Joseph had children that were their children, so maybe they saw those kids and assumed that Jesus was in the mix, because Jesus is always where he's supposed to be. Mary thinks he's with Joseph, Joseph thinks he's with Mary, until the night comes, and it's time for the family at the end of the day of travel to get together to eat. That's what they would do, and there is no Jesus So they're one day away. They're 20 miles out. You don't travel at night. That's just just asking for disaster because of the threat. So the next day, it's going to take all day just to get back to Jerusalem. That's two days. And then on the third day, they find him. That's what Luke tells us. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple. The temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. They get to Jerusalem and they find what is a typical learning scenario. You've got teachers who are seated and in the middle of the teachers are the pupils. Now, we've got something special here for all of us who would aspire to be leaders. I want you to pay attention to the sequence. Jesus listening to them, asking questions of them, and then he's heard. I'm convinced that is a leadership gem buried in the middle of this story. Because from what I'm watching, we live in a culture where it seems like everybody wants to be heard. But it appears as though we have lost sight of the sequence. And I'm challenging you to realize today that no matter how accomplished of a leader you become, it is leaders who are wise who recognize this sequence should never be lost. A sequence that says, if I want to be heard, you know where you start? Listen. And after you listen, ask. It is a sequence of humility. There's a word for us. A sequence of humility that says I can still learn. I've still got something to learn here. I'm reminded that I don't know everything. I mean, lots of times when we want to be heard, it's because we're coming to a situation and it's like I got something valuable. But the truth of the matter is we still don't know the whole story. And even Jesus, he listens, and then he asks. And then it says he amazes them. And I'm reminding you that when Jesus amazes them, there's no conceit here with him. There's no pride, no self-centeredness, no self-promotion, no arrogance. When most of us amaze, we kind of like that, right? I mean, come on, we, we want to be able to amaze people. It's why we can't wait to be heard. But Jesus is not that way. He is a humble learner. He is a respectful boy. That's the picture that's given here. But his questions are so insightful, and his questions are so powerful that that it it generates an amazement on the part of these teachers. Speaking of teachers, I I, I just want to highlight this word. It is a specific word that Luke Uses. We don't know who these teachers are, but the word that he uses for teacher here is a kind word. It is a complimentary word, but it is a word that he will never use again to describe these people. This is the only time he uses it. The rest of all of Luke's writing, he will call them lawyers or he will call them scribes. He will never use this term for them again. Guess who he uses the term with? Jesus. In other words, once Jesus became the teacher... Nobody else is called the teacher. And man, I believe that's a truth for you and me. I mean, one of the things I think that is a crazy blessing to our lives that we, we don't often give thanks for on a regular basis is if you are blessed with good teachers. And I mean teachers in your house, Teachers in your education, when you come across good teachers, man, you you ought to be grateful for that. But the point is, once you see who Jesus is, and once you commit your life to him, the point is, all other teachers take a back seat to Jesus, and all other teachers from that point on should be evaluated in terms of, do they say what Jesus says? he's the teacher verse 48 the teachers are amazed when his parents saw him they were astonished his mother said to him son why have you treated us like this your father and I have been anxiously searching for you so the teachers are astonished because of the questions Mary and Joseph are astonished for another reason Jesus is lost. But when they get to him, he only acts like he's lost in the moment. And seemingly without any regard or concern for the whereabouts of his family. And so Mary goes full on mama. And she going to dish out a little guilt here. I mean, I don't, I don't really know how else to read that. She, she kind of makes an effort at that as though Jesus intended to somehow intentionally inflict in, in anxiety on his, on his parents as though he had done this for the purpose of making them to worry or fear. Here's what she's wrestling with for 12 years. Jesus has been nothing but obedient, nothing but compliant, nothing but loving, right? Right? He's only done what would be expected of him every single time, every single place, in every single way. But this time, right, they're taking it personally because of the stress that they have felt for the last three days. Jesus is not being disrespectful. What I want us to see today is what Luke wanted us to see today. This scene was necessary. It was necessary because this scene is about identity. It was necessary to make an inevitable break between Jesus and his earthly family. He had come to do the will of the Father. That's something that we read in, in the other books of the Bible that he will say over and over again. And through this scene, this break, it's not going to be implemented for a number of years to come, but this was the moment it was announced. So here's the reply, verse 49. Jesus, why have you done this to us? And here's what he says. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And I'm telling you, this is the point of the story. This is... Is the profound statement. This is why Luke gave you one story in the first 30 years. This is why he inserts this most important statement. They tell us who Jesus is, and these words tell us why he came. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Here's what, here, I'm, I'm gonna paraphrase, and I know this is dangerous because Jesus said it way better, okay? You should have come here first. <laughs> he didn't say it like that because he didn't have that attitude. You should have you come here first because you know who my father is. And you know this is my true house. I don't really belong in the house in Nazareth. God is my true father. I belong with his people in his house. It takes himself out from under his earthly parents and places him under the will and the authority of God, who is his true father. That's what he's saying here. God is my father. God is my authority. The force that is controlling everything in my life, it it is my father. He's saying to his parents, you should have known that. Now, if you read the story this week, Simeon, right? Simeon said to Mary, when it comes to this child, there's going to be a sword effect. For your heart. For 12 years, there has been no sword until now. Luke is going to tell us about one more time later in his book when Mary's going to show up with, with her other children to find Jesus. And the crowd says to Jesus, your mother is seeking you. And you know what Jesus' response is that day? My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And we read that and we go, well, that is just rude. But you know what he's doing? He's distancing himself from that human relationship in this. Look, it is not because Jesus doesn't love Mary. He Loves Mary perfectly. When he is dying on a cross, he's taking care of Mary. Read the story again. He loves Mary, but because of his perfect love for her, here's what needed to be understood Mary needed not to see Jesus as a son to do what she wanted, but as the Savior. Who was doing what the Father wanted? Hmm. Here's what it says in verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. They didn't understand. And I think it's, I don't know, a little comical how we read this, and, and I, it's interesting to me how people will question how could they not understand? And I'm going to say it appears to me that there are a lot of people today, even sitting in church every week, whose lives don't seem to reflect that they understand what Jesus said either. We'll come back to that. I want you to see these last couple of verses, verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So come on, do you realize what just happened? Jesus just made a statement. Where's his authority? Father. And then what does he do next? He obeys his mom and dad. Because he chooses to submit to that authority the relationship that he had with the father did not nullify as human the responsibility that he had to obey his parents and so the fifth commandment he kept right on now don't you know there had to be some days when mary or joseph were making some decisions for jesus and he's like but different than your kid, right? Your kid, your kid does this, but it's because they think they know. He's Jesus, right? I mean, can you imagine the intimidation factor of being the parent of Jesus, right? And if by 12, he knows who he is and why he's there, then there are gonna be some decisions you might have made. He's like, uh, But what a picture of, again, humility. What a picture of a willingness to submit and it says Mary treasures these things, but the evidence is also there that Mary is wrestling with these things. She had to realize that this one that she would call son, she's got to see him as a savior. There's got to be an exchange that happens with Mary, an exchange of, from authority over him to submission to him. An exchange from her seeing responsibility over him that she needs redemption through him. An exchange from simply a wonder over this most exceptional child. Some of you have that for your kids. You just, you're in wonder, they're, they're great kids. No, she, she's got to see this moves from just wonder about an exceptional child to worship, Worship of the Son of God. And I want us to wrestle with this a little bit. Jesus says, Didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? Who's he claiming to be? The Son of God. Luke has been careful to tell us the angels have declared that he's the son of God, declared it to the shepherds, right? Communicated it when it came to to Mary and to Joseph. The the gospel writers, when we read scripture, they make it clear he's the son of God. The the apostles who preached Jesus, they knew he was the son of God. The Bible tells us the demons know he's the son of God. Even Satan himself, when Satan tempts Jesus, his line is, since you are the son of God, God but Luke gives us this story because it's the place where for the first time Jesus declares he is my father I'm his son and I'm telling you this is the single most important claim that Jesus makes to say you are the savior is one thing To say that you are king, it is significant. Those are important. But to say that you are the son of God is above all those other things. This is actually the claim that led to Jesus being crucified. This is why they crucified him. Why? What's the big deal? The big deal is to say that you are the son of God is to claim that you are are equal to God. And when you trace this phrase throughout Scripture, when it is applied to Jesus, it is to declare his absolute eternal equality with God, the one who has always existed, always been God's son, not a human title but a divine title. Our language Of son, when we use the word son, we we think of, okay, this is a male offspring of a couple, right? It means a birth has happened, uh, 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 one who has come into existence from another source. But that's not the way the word son is used in a Jewish culture. And that's not how it's used in Hebrew thought and language, And so when Luke gives you the story of Jesus being born, he's careful of the words he picks. His first word is infant, and then he describes Jesus as a little child, and then he uses the word for boy, because Luke knows that son is a different level. Son was someone who had reached adulthood, when a boy became a man, he became a son. So that son meant that he reached equality with his father. That's what it means. When, when, the, when, when the time came, the son became equal to his father under the law. That's what happened with a Jewish boy. He became equal with his father in terms of adult responsibility. you got to remember, a lot of these, these, these boys, they were married by the time they were 14 and 15 and 16 years old. To be a son meant they were equal in terms of receiving an inheritance that, that was planned for them. They were equal in entering into the privilege that the Father had reserved for them. The word son in Hebrew thought means equal to, one with. I can prove this to you with a long list of evidence throughout Scripture of how this word is used consistently. When we get to the book of Acts, we're gonna learn about a a young, a new, or an early follower of Jesus named Barnabas. Barnabas had a name, Son of Encouragement. It's not because his daddy was named Encouragement, it's because when they saw Barnabas, he was equated with Encouragement. What were James and John called? The sons of thunder. It's not because their daddy was named Thunder. They're given the title because when those two dudes walked into a room, it shook. They had that personality, they, they were equated with thunder. That's the picture. And so when Jesus says he's the son of God, it does not mean that he came into existence being born in Bethlehem and that prior to that, it did not exist. That's not what son means. He means he is equal to, he is one with God, same essence, same nature, same character, same rights, same privileges. My question today is the question that I think Luke is raising in why he put this story in the text. Do you understand the ramifications of that truth that Jesus is son of God? He loved Mary perfectly, but she needed not to see him as a son to do what she wanted, but as a Savior who's doing the will of the Father. And it's why I say, I'm afraid that for so many people, our lives do not reflect the fact that we understand who he is either. And I'm afraid our lives at times reflect the fact that we see Jesus like this powerful person who is really good to have in our corner because we need stuff. We need stuff. No. He is the son of God. We need him to give us what he knows we need. Which starts with forgiveness. It starts with being reconciled to God. And So I'm saying today, come on, if you're, if you're starting to walk this journey with us and maybe, maybe you're listening in today and you're not yet sure who this Jesus is, Man, I want to challenge you, come on, stay with this for a while. Because if he is who he claims to be, this could change everything. But for those of us who already claim to believe this, Does it really shape how we live? Because if you believe he's this, then the way you face temptation, you will fight differently. You won't just cave and chalk it up to weakness. No, if you know who he is and you see what he's done for you and you realize a perfect love, you will fight temptation different than you currently fight. This, if it's true, should change how we face adversity. And that should mean right now in this country, the church should look different than the rest. If this is true, it should change how we make decisions. If this is true, it should change what we value. My question is, do you really understand who he is? And I challenge you to recognize your life is the answer to that question. We have designed it today to give us some time to hang out with this statement. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me if you would and we're gonna sing a little bit. We're gonna sing... And I really want you to zero in on the words that we are about to declare who he is. And then, if that's true, what do we do? Jesus is Son of God. Let's sing it together.